U.S. Navy history arriving. Welcome back to U.S. Navy History Podcast. I'm Dale, and I finally let Stephen out of timeout. Hello, Exo. Listen, okay, the cook's food is too salty. I don't care what everyone says. If you insult the cook, the cook makes your food crap. I've told you this. Everybody else has had no problem with his food. Well, everybody else just has poor taste. One of these days you will learn, and I will give you a plaque on that day. Aw, thanks, Captain. You're welcome. It will say no longer an idiot. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, we're going to be starting on the second and finishing the second Barbary War. So, you ready to get underway? All right, let's start Barbary War 2, Electric Boogaloo. Barbary War, the sequel. So, this was also known as the Algerian or Algerine War. It was fought again with the Ottoman Empire's North African uh, regencies of Tripoli, Tunis, and Algeria, which are the Barbary states. So, the end of this war brought an end to the American practice of paying tribute to the pirates and helped spark the end of piracy in that entire region. So run that one by me. I could have sworn that we uh, ended that practice after the last Barbary War. Well, in this day and age, it's kind of hard to fight two wars at the same time. Hmm. Which is why Britain was so ineffective at the beginning of 1812, because they were fighting with Napoleon. Right. So we can fight on two fronts, or we can just pay one off and fight the other one. Better to start paying tribute again for a few years after kicking the hornet's nest that is the United Kingdom. And then once that conflict is over, everybody just does a slow turn to the Barbary states. Oh, oh, were these ships yours? You know what? You can have them back, and here's the crews back. We'll, we'll keep the cargo. I'm assuming they didn't have the good sense to do that? No. Oh, boy. So, while the War of 1812 was happening... The Barbary pirates were like, you know what? These guys are distracted. We're going to start attacking America and European vessels again. And we're going to take that stuff. And so they started taking ships and ransoming off their crews. Even though we were paying tribute? The tribute would stop that, but you still got to start doing the ransom to get the tribute again. Hmm. So once... 1812 was done, as I said before. All heads turned towards the Barbary Coast. So the U.S. Congress, on March 3rd of 1815, authorized a deployment against the naval powers of Algiers. They assembled two squadrons and kitted them out for war. One squadron was under Commodore William Bainbridge out of Boston, And the second one was out of Commodore Stephen Decanter, based out of New York. Now, Decanter was ready to get underway on May 20th, and he had under his command, his flagship was the USS Guerriere of 44 guns, and the captain of the Guerriere was William Lewis. The Constellation had 36 guns and commanded by Captain Charles Gordon, 
There was the Macedonia with 38 guns under the command of Captain Jacob Jones. A sloop of war, Ipery, commanded by Captain John Dowes. The Ontario with 16 guns commanded by Captain Jesse D. Elliott. And the Briggs Firefly. Firefly. Yeah, let's fry those fires. <laughs> and the Briggs Firefly, Spark, and Flambeau, all with 14 guns. And they were commanded by Lieutenants George W. Codgers, Thomas Gamble, and John B. Nicholson. There was also a couple of schooners, Touch and Spitfire, of 12 guns, commanded by Lieutenants Walcock, Chauncey, and Alexander J. Dallas. Oh, I was going to say, compared to the first Barbary War, the crews are going to be a lot more experienced between being actively at war for the last two and a half, three years, I'd imagine. There's, they're a lot more experienced, and there's a lot more of them, because you're going from one combat footing to another one. Now, Bainbridge, he was slow to get his crews together, and so he didn't leave until July 1st, which means he missed all the action. Oh, poor guy. So, Decanter, he was en route to Algiers, and he encountered a Algerian flagship called the Mushada, and in the battle off Cape Gata, he captures it. Well done. So they continue on, and by the f- end of June, they reach Algiers, and they start negotiations. So there are persistent demands for recompensation with a lot of threats of destruction. So the leader, which is called the Day, he was like, okay. You got me. So they signed a treaty on the Guerriere in the Bay of Algiers on July 3rd. Now, Decanter agreed to return the ships that he captured, the Mushada and the Estio, and the Algerians returned all American captives that they had, which was about 10. So they also exchanged European captives for subjects of the day which is around 500 guys so the day gets all captured ships returned all captured crew returned and he just has to give up 10 americans and a small handful of europeans he also does have to pay ten thousand dollars because of siege shipping hmm all right and this is 1815 yes okay he he's still made out like a bandit Uh, that's only about 188k nowadays. The treaty also guaranteed that no further tributes were to be paid and granted the U.S. full shipping rights. So, in 1816, Britain did a diplomatic mission as well. And they brought a small squadron of ships to the line in Tunis, Tripoli, and Algiers so they could try to convince the Days to stop their piracy against them. So, the Bays of Tunis and Tripoli agreed to this without any fighting, but the Day of Algiers was more reluctant. So the negotiations got a little bit nasty. Resistant how? And why? Well, the leader of the diplomatic mission was a Mr. Edward 
Hello, who was the first Viscount of Exmouth. He believed that he had a great treaty, which was going to stop the slavery of Christians and return them to England. But there was confusion. So the Algerians troops massacred about 200 Corsican, Sicilian, and Sardinian fishermen right in front of the British, just after the CD was signed. So, of course, this caused outrage in Britain and in Europe. And this is why his negotiations were seen as a failure. I'm just trying to think of what logic that... Yes, we've just signed a peace treaty. Wonderful. Yeah, we, we can't exactly engage in the piracy and the slave trading anymore, but this document doesn't say anything about murdering hundreds of uh, fishermen. Maybe they found a hole in the treaty. <laughs> Except that he was ordered to go back and complete the job and to punish the Algerians. Understandably. So he got together a squadron of five ships of the line. So these are big ships. Mm -hmm. They were also reinforced by a number of frigates and also a flotilla of six Dutch ships. So this was an international cooperation. This is sounding like the 1816 equivalent of uh, Desert Storm. Well, the UN wasn't involved at this time because they didn't exist. Well, yeah, I, I, I'm just saying like a small... Um, you know, North African, Middle Eastern nation starts throwing its weight around and Western powers are just, okay, enough of that now. We're going to bring everything we have to bear for this one. Well, when you murder 500, mi what was it, 500? I think it was 200, you said. When you murder 200 fishermen just after signing a peace agreement? That's going to tick off a lot of people. Oh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that the UK or the Netherlands or anybody's overreacting to this. This is a very understandable response. I'm like, I guess what I'm saying is that level of international cooperation of, hey, those folks, we all agree that we're not fond of them at the moment and we're all agreeing to get along for the time being just to make sure that we can mess them up and teach them a lesson. That wasn't that common in this era, right? Like, aside from Napoleon relatively recently, in regards to the history, I can't think of anybody else that had a lot of Western powers all agreeing, all right, that guy's the one we're going to mess up. Well, this is also only two countries. Oh, it was only two? Yeah, it was the Dutch and the English. Okay. So, there was another round of negotiations... In August, on the 27th of the next year, and these negotiations didn't go anywhere. So this fleet of English and Dutch ships, they bombarded Algiers for nine hours. So this attack pretty much destroyed the Corsairs of the day and the shore batteries of, of his, which, you know, accepted him to accept a peace offer on the terms that he had just rejected because the Viscount warned that if they were not accepted, he would continue the bombardment. So the day accepted these terms, but here's the kicker. It was a bluff. 
the fleet had already expended all of its ammunition. <laughs> the bombardment will continue until terms are agreed upon. Okay, okay. Thank goodness we were so. Yeah. So this treaty was signed on September 24th of 1816, which ended up freeing 1,083 Christian slaves, the British consul, and the U.S. ransom money was repaid. Good. So, the years immediately following this brief conflict, there's no general European wars for a while. So this allows the Europeans to build up their resources and then challenge the Barbary power in the Mediterranean again. So this goes on for about a century, and then Algiers and Tunis becomes colonies of France. And then Tripoli returns to the control of the Ottoman Empire. And then we go all the way to 1911. Italy takes Tripoli because of a vacuum power left by the Ottoman Empire when they fell. And then the Europeans remain in control of the government in eastern North Africa until about the mid-20th century. And then by then, of course, the dreadnoughts have dominance of the Mediterranean Sea. So, that's the Second Barbary War. Not that, much there, is there? We were involved for that for, like, maybe a week or two? We spent more time sailing there and sailing back than we actually spent fighting them, it sounds like. Yeah, it was not. The, the First Barbary War was... A couple years, if memory serves. Four years. Yeah, a lot of it was blockading and patrolling, but... Yeah. yeah uh, this was a weekend trip, practically. Yeah, this one was... It started in 1815. We had, on the U.S. side, two whole battles, two engagements, which we will be getting into here shortly, and then peace right after that. Pretty much, it's on the way there. We fight two engagements. We show up on their doorstep and say, hey, stop it or else. <laughs> and they were like, you got it, dude. <laughs> and then... Europeans and Barbary were still going through that for another year themselves. But all in all, yeah, it was about a year, year and a half in total for everybody to stop being stupid. So one of the two battles, one was the battle off Cape Gata. You, we had reference to that one earlier. So this happened on June 17th of 1815. So when Decanter left, New York, he had orders to destroy Algerian vessels and to bring the day of Algiers the terms for peace because of to get them to stop attacking American shipping. Yeah. So he gets to the Strait of Gibraltar on June 15th, and that's when he's like, well, now the mission begins. I'm in enemy territory. So he figures out that a number of Algerian cruisers had just gone through the Strait of Gibraltar right before he did. So Decanter goes, you know what? I'm going to chase them. I'm going to cut them off before they can get home. So he has nine vessels in his fleet, and he finds the flagship, Ushada, which has 46 guns off of the Cape of Gata, which is there in Spain. 
So, of course, this guy sees nine ships and goes, well, I'm heavily outnumbered. I'm out of here. Understandable response. But, of course, he was overtaken by the squadron. So they're fired upon from the constellation. Gets heavily damaged, and the admiral himself is wounded. So the Algerians decide to try to go for a neutral port in the Spanish coast. But the constellation was right there on them. And then the sloop Ontario was able to close in, and they both just hammer the frigate. The Algerians decided to try musket fire when they got really close. But, of course, the canter is very experienced, and he gets the Garrier alongside the frigate and fires a devastating broadside into her, crippling the ship and killing the Admiral. So, after this, he ceases fi- the canter ceases fire. He expects the Algerian ship to surrender. Oh, no. Instead, the Algerians continue to fight with muskets for as long as they are able to. So, Decanter brings in another sloop, the Epiver, who fired nine broadsides into Mashuda. And, of course, this has disastrous effects. But this also brings the battle to a close because the Algerians like, okay, we're being really stupid here. Let's just surrender. So at the end of all this, 406 Algerians are captured with pretty much all of them being wounded. And then there's also 30 of them who died. One of which was the admiral of that entire battle group that had sailed through earlier. The American losses, four dead, ten wounded on the Guerrier. No other casualties on any of the other boats. And most of these casualties were due to a gun that exploded. Oh, like a, a cannon misfiring? And uh, Yep, a cannon, a cannon went boom, and that's where most of their casualties came from. Huh. Well, I mean, you did state that this was effectively placing dynamite at the base of a barrel, and then loading it with a bowling ball, and just hoping it stuck to in one piece. That's exactly what these cannons were. What fun! <laughs> I'm so glad I don't hang out with the gunnery crews, those mad bastards. Yeah, they've been talking about wanting to shove you in a cannon and lighting it off. Por qué? So Decanter puts a prize crew aboard, and sends it off to Cartenga. And Decanter takes the rest of his boats and keeps going towards Algiers. And then encounters another Algerian cruiser off of Cape Palos, which is the next battle we're going to be getting into. So let's actually just grab right, go right into it. So he goes after this cruiser and chases them into the shoal waters near the coast of Spain off of Cape Palos. Now, he was very concerned that his larger vessels might get beached, so he sent his smaller vessels, the USS Epiver, USS Spark, USS Torch, and USS Spitfire, to deal with the brig. He's like, oh, you saw what I did to the last guys. You guys got this. Plus, I don't want to beach myself. Yeah, makes sense. So they fight a 
short engagement. It lasts about half an hour. And then the Algerians begin to just jump off the boat and surrender. Hmm. So as these guys jumping off the boat, they lower their their small boats and start rowing towards the beach. The Americans start firing on these boats as well, and they sink one. And then after that one goes down, everybody just freezes where they were. They're like, okay, we're done. Just tell us where you want us to go. <laughs> well, they're a lot smarter than the first ship. So this was 80 captured men, and they lost 23. So after this one was taken, they also sent this one off to Kartenga. And then, of course, both of these ships were returned to Algiers when the treaty was signed. And then, of course, Decanter Squadron regrouped and went to Algiers and forced the day to terms, which wasn't very hard. I went to Algeria and all I got was this silly treaty. Well, it's not a silly treaty. It was a very good treaty. It was a very good treaty. I'm just shocked at how short this was for, you know, our Navy compared to the first time around. But, again, like, this is after they've had almost three years against one of the major superpowers of the world at the time. Yeah. All it took was two battles, and uh, they saw reason. Went a little bit different for the British, but, yeah. That first ship, you said it was making for, you know, just any neutral port it could get to since Spain was neutral in this war. And, uh... In that situation, what, what's the policy? Like, if uh, two ships are engaged in hostile activity because of wartime, if one of them is out, gets out of international waters and into the waters of a neutral nation, suddenly they're no longer fair game because they're on sovereign territory of a party not involved? Not necessarily. It depends on how gutsy the captain is. He could continue the chase, and as long as he can aim his shot well and not hit any Spanish things. But more than likely, he might have just blockaded the port, waiting for them to come back out, like the British did to us over in Spain as well, during the uh, a number of different wars up to this point in time. Okay, and I'm guessing whatever nation that in that situation, uh, like the nation that the ship being fired upon would flee to would probably not be thrilled about it either because now their neutrality is being threatened because one party is now, you know, seeking asylum in their waters because another party wants to sink them. So it's like, you know, we can resupply you if you can pay for it. You know, you can stay here if you're willing to pay the docking fees if you need to do repairs, but, uh, you know, shove off. We're, we're not protecting you. It might not even go that far. They would have just closed their ports to them. Mm. They would have to just sit there until they could affect their own repairs and try to escape. Or, you know, a lot. most of the time, the ports wouldn't accept them. They would okay. not give them supplies. They would have been like, We're, this is not our fight. You can't be here. Oh, okay. So that that is a really big gamble if somebody's trying to do that. Well, it would have allow them to get there and lick their own wounds while not being fired upon. But then they're also trapped there until they're able to leave. So it can be effective to repair yourself 
but you're not going to get any support. Gotcha. So I thought that with the USS the Sullivans in the news, we might want to go ahead and talk about her instead of going on to the West Indies anti-piracy operations. That sounds good. Tell me a little bit about the Sullivan. Well, the reason why she's in the news now is because she is sinking or was sinking. She is a World War II destroyer. The whole number is 537. And she's a museum ship in Buffalo, New York, sitting right there in the uh, Erie. And apparently she developed 10 holes in her hull and started taking on water. That's been fixed now? Last I heard, it has been fixed. The water has been pumped out, and now they have cleanup and repairs to do. So, USS The Sutherlands, DD-537, is a Fletcher-class destroyer. She was named in honor of the Sullivan brothers. As you can imagine, that's probably named after somebody. They were George, Francis, Joseph, Madison, and Albert. They were between 20 and 27 years old when they all lost their lives on the ship that they were stationed on, the USS Junu. She was sunk by a Japanese submarine during the Battle of Guadalcanal, November 13th, 1942. And you remember Saving Private Ryan? I was going to say, isn't that the uh, group of brothers that inspired that whole, I, I forget the name of the policy, but, you know, do your damnedest to make sure that there's at least one surviving brother? Well, that was all fake. Yeah. This was real. This yes, This was yeah. the greatest military loss by one American family during World War II. Mm-hmm. And I do know that after those four brothers passed away, that it became pretty standard procedure to avoid putting family members in the same unit to minimize the chances of, you know, one family suffering so much of a loss. Well, it was never very smart to begin with. The only reason this happened on the, with the Sullivan brothers mm-hmm. is because they said, if you want us to serve, we are serving together. I don't know why they got away with that, but that is reportedly what happened. So they put them all on the boat together. So the USS the Sullivans saw service in both World War II and North Korea. And the Sullivans was assigned to the Sixth Fleet, and she was also a training ship before she was decommissioned in 1965. So in 1977, she was processed for donation to the Buffalo and Erie County Naval and Military Park in Buffalo, New York. And she is a museum ship and is open up until, you know, she started to sink for public tours and hopefully will be once again. So in uh, World War II in North Korea, then, was she primarily just escort duty and keeping an eye out for enemy submarines? Well, we'll get into her whole career. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, we're, uh, I'm not ending it there. Okay, we, we haven't focused on one ship before. This is uncharted water for me. <laughs> yes, it is. So um, let's get into a little bit of her stats real quick. 
So her keel was laid on October 10th, 1942, and she was launched April 4th the next year. And she, a lot of times these boats are sponsored by someone, and this was sponsored by Mrs. Thomas F. Sullivan. Okay, so what does that mean exactly? Because I'm assuming that Mrs. Thompson S. Sullivan didn't uh, foot the bill for a good chunk of this ship. So the sponsor is actually named by the Secretary of the Navy. It is a honor that is bestowed to be named a sponsor. The Their role is that they will participate in some of the milestones in the life of the ship and the experiences. Oh, okay, so if she wished to attend, she would be the person... Um, why am I drawing a blank on what it's called? Smashing the bottle of champagne on the hull. Yeah. And, of course, the Mrs. Sullivan is the mother of those five sailors who were killed. Right. So she is commissioned in September 30th of that same year and then decommissioned in January 7th of 1965. Then her name was taken off the list of active duty ships. December 1st of 1974. Now, her call sign was November Indigo Delta Unicorn, and her motto was We Stick Together. As stated, I, she's a Fletcher-class destroyer. She displaced 2,080 tons. She, her length was 376 feet 6 inches, her beam 39 feet 8 inches, and she had a draft of 17 feet 9 inches. Now, what's the draft? Like, waterline to uh, main deck? Waterline to bottom of the boat. Ah, okay. Thinking in the wrong direction. Yep. She was powered by four oil-fired Babcock and Wilcock boilers. And she had 60,000 horsepower. For propulsion, she had two General Electric geared steam turbines and two shafts. She had a top speed of around 35 knots, which to you guys would be 40 miles per hour. And she had a range of about 6,500 nautical miles. Her crew complement was 336. And she was originally built with an armament of five 5 inch 38 caliber guns, 10 40 millimeter AA guns, seven 20 millimeter AA guns, 10 21-inch torpedo tubes, six K-gun depth charge throwers, two depth charge tracks, four 5-inch caliber guns, two 3-inch caliber guns, four 40-millimeter anti-aircraft guns, four 20-millimeter anti-aircraft guns, two Mark 32 triple torpedo tubes, two hedgehog weapons, which is a... It's a forward-throwing anti-submarine weapon. Okay, so a, a depth charge you launch off the bow rather than dumping off the aft. Think underwater mortars. I, I'm enjoying my initial interpretation of it a little more, where they're just <laughs> throwing hedgehogs at the enemy. And with that one, they had one depth charge track. Okay. So, they were originally going to call this boat Putnam, but then she was renamed by... President Franklin Roosevelt because he wanted us to honor the Sullivans. Now, he did the Sullivans instead of Sullivan because he wanted to do all five brothers and not just one of them. Mm -hmm. 
1944, they have a shakedown cruise. And then she gets underway with sister ships, Dorch and Gatling, on December 23rd of 1943. And they arrive at Pearl Harbor five days later. Then they start training operations. And once they get through that, she's assigned to Destroyer Squadron 52, or Desron 52. So, on January 16th, she steams out of Pearl Harbor with Task Group 58.2, bound for the Marshall Islands. She gets to the Quadrillion Atoll and joins the Battleship Division 9 group. Then, two days later, as all of these guys reach their targets, the picket destroyers were sent ahead to protect the main force or the battleships from the enemy. So on January 24th, the task group arrives at dawn to start airstrikes against Roy. So two days go by and the Sullivan screens the Essex, Intrepid, and Cobalt as they launch pretty much continuous air raids. And then after this, they go and continue their operations to the north and northwest of Roy and the Namur Islands throughout the Battle of Kwajalein. And then on February 4th, they turn around and go to Majuro to refuel and replenish their stores. So on the 12th, after they're all done, they, they go back and continue their screening of the Essex and Trippet and Cobalt, which is... They're circling around the entire battle group looking for submarines and incoming aircraft to give the carriers time to sortie defensive fighters if needed. Right. Like, the role of this ship in those, like, it is to act as a, you know, early warning service and first response in the event of somebody trying to get in. Mm Mm-hmm. So, these guys got lucky. The... Commander of the Sullivans wrote in his logs, no enemy opposition of any kind was encountered, which means that the air attack from these three carriers was a complete surprise on the enemy. So five days later, this changes. The enemy strikes back. They torpedo Intrepid at 0010, which makes the carrier slow to 20 knots and lose steering control. That's not good. So the Sullivans, Owen, and Stembull, they go and stand by the stricken carrier and escort her to Majuro for repairs. So once they get there on the 21st, the Sullivans turns around and goes to Pearl Harbor because they need some upkeep and some dry docking. But... 18 days later, she is underway again. So she covers the sorties of the task groups of 58.2, 58.9, and 50.15 from Majuro, bound for the Paulus, Yap, and Boli Islands. Okay. So on the 29th, the fleet was approaching their next target area when they were attacked by enemy aircraft. Thankfully, the anti-aircraft fire from this task force was able to drive them away. The next day, this is putting us on the 30th now of March, the Sullivans was doing her screening operations and helped to beat off a Japanese air attack. 
So once again, going back for replenishment, and then she comes back out to screen for task group 58.2 when they were performing airstrikes on Hollandia. Tanahumura, Wakdi, and Atapi. I apologize for my pronunciation. I know it's horrendous. This was to support operations of amphibious landings onto New Guinea. And then late in April, the Sullivans participated in support of airstrikes on a Japanese base at Truk. On the 29th, the Japanese retaliated with a air attack. Now, the radar picked up four Japanese planes 16 miles away, coming in very fast at altitudes between 10 and 500 feet. So once these guys came into range, the Sullivans opened fire with only one 40mm twin mount. But all five-inch guns. I'm kind of surprised that their radar was able to pick that up. Uh, granted, I'm not sure what military radar can do, but uh, fun fact, your XO got his pilot's license before he got his driver's license. Um, generally, if you're under a thousand feet, you are not showing up on radar nowadays. At least that's what I was told uh, during by my instructor. Well, you also got to understand that radar has evolved over the years. And also, cruising altitudes have evolved over the years as well. Also fair. And yes, military radar would cover more of the spectrum than civilian radar. But uh, don't, don't, don't follow the example of those Japanese pilots, folks. Don't be 10 to 500 feet above sea level or ground level. Always stay at least a thousand above for your own safety. Unless you don't want to file a flight plan, then you got to stay below a thousand. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. If you if you want to just you know not have anyone knowing where you're at, sure, stay under a thousand. Just hope your engine doesn't cut out at a very inopportune time. So, two of these planes get splashed, and then one of them crosses ahead of the Sullivan's, was hit, and crashes in flames off of her port beam. So very close. So then she goes and provides cover for the battleships led by the Iowa, who bombards the island of Ponape. Now, is that part of New Guinea, or is this a, a different campaign they're helping with now? This is part of the Caroline Island groups, part of the Senyavin Islands. This would be north of New Guinea. Okay. North north to northeast of New Guinea. So same area. Gotcha. So she actually takes part and fires 18 rounds at extreme long range to Tumu Point. And then she saw three beach Japanese landing barges and shifted her fire over to them. Hmm. And now, what is extreme range for the Sullivans with these guns? So they probably use the five inch guns so these guns would be when you look at an old destroyer you would see probably two on the front two on the back modern day destroyers you'd see a five inch gun on the front the maximum horizontal range of one of these guns with a 55 pound projectile is just under 10 miles what what just under 10 miles uh yes uh, gunnery sergeant i captain yeah, do you see that little blip there on the horizon? 
barely why. I don't wish to see it anymore. Now, when they use this gun in an anti-aircraft roll, it reaches a 37,200 feet ceiling. Okay, yeah, yep. Um, short of a, you know, U-2 spy plane or, uh, you know, your SR-71 Blackbird, neither of which existed in World War II, I think you're good. We had very effective weapons. Clearly. USS can shoot over Mount Everest because, you know, what's height advantage? Only 10 miles into the coast. Anything beyond that, you had to have aircraft for if you wanted to keep the U.S. Navy involved. This is the Pacific Theater. You know, island hopping is the name of the game. Most of these islands are probably don't have many, if any, spots that are 10 miles away from the coast. Papua New Guinea notwithstanding. Yeah, these small ones, yeah. Shore bombardment from boats was very effective. Okay, so the Sullivan's does a unrep with Yorktown and goes to back to Majuro. And then 10 days later, after doing a shore replenishment, she sorties again with Task Group 58.2, bound for Marcus and the Wake Islands. So the whole Wake stuff starts. And pretty much from 0800, the carriers keep sortying aircraft for three days. Holy crap. Now, after this, they go back to Najero and the Sullivan's actually tries to hunt a submarine. What was unable to find it? So next, they get underway for Saipan, Tinian, and Guam to screen the carriers that are conducting airstrikes in the area. Every once in a while, the Sullivans picked up enemy snoopers. I, I assume this isn't a uh, comic strip mascot armed with a rifle. No. Snoopers are radar-equipped aircraft used for night raids. Oh. Oh, yeah. They... I forgot about that. They, they did start installing radar and planes towards the tail end of the war, didn't they? Because of how well radar started becoming, being able to be used for direct fire operations and everything like that, that radar advanced in leaps and bounds. And yes, I think mid to late World War II, radar was just being installed everywhere. Right. So once they started seeing these guys, they actually get one and shoot them down. Good for them. So they go to Saipan and they are going to support the landings on Saipan. They are assigned to be a communication link to different areas of the task force. So they can be stretched out along areas to have really good radio communications. All right, that's sensible. Which means that she had to stay within visual sight of both task group A 58.1 and 58.2 during the day. So... She also, during this day, picks up 31 Japanese merchant seamen because their ship had been sunk offshore. So they take them and they keep them as prisoners until they can get them to the Indianapolis. June 19th of 1944 was the first day of the Battle of the Philippine Sea. And the Japanese attacked the task group with their aircraft. The Sullivan's was able to pick up one of the planes visually at a range of five miles. So 
when they spot them, they are diving from 23,000 feet to start their attack run. From five miles away? You're 23,000 feet. You want a controlled dive. That's that's when uh, you really want to start coming down for your uh, landing. I mean, I, w- I was flying a single-engine Cessna that uh, I-, I think the highest me and my instructor ever took it was 12. It got chilly. Mm. So I, I'm, I'm no expert at uh, how fast and how far away you should or should not be descending. Well, I'm sure they know better than we would. Th- this is true. This is true. So the Sullivans take tracer fire and then they open up with their 20 and 40 millimeter batteries. And moments later, the plane just crashes just short of the horizon. So they got them far out. Well, you, you fill the sky with enough flaming hot lead, something gets hit eventually. Mm-hmm. So next, she's again screening carriers on June 30th. During this battle, the Sullivans served as a fighter direction ship for TU-58.2.4. And on Independence Day, the Sullivans joined Bombardment Unit 1 to conduct a shore bombardment of airfields, shore batteries, and other installations on the west coast of Iwo Jima. So these huge boats open fire at 1500, and of course, smoke and dust soon obscured targets all along the western shore of the island, which of course makes spotting difficult. And then the Sullivans, they open fire at 1548 on planes parked on the airstrips. So after three salvos, they commenced hitting twin-engine, quote, Bettys parked in revments along the strip, blowing up five planes and putting eight other planes out of commission by shrapnel. Then they spotted a enemy LST, and they opened fire on that, and the stern of that enemy ship started to catch fire. And then the USS Miller closed to finish the vessel off. So from July 7th to the 22nd, this task group was operating to the south and west of the Marianas, conducting airstrikes on Guam and Rota Islands, and then goes back to Saipan to replenish their stores. So early in September, the Navy was preparing to take Paulus. The Sullivans supported neutralizing airstrikes against Japanese air bases in the Philippines. On the 7th, she was on radar picket duty and kept doing that through the 10th. On September 12th, they noted an increase in air activity, observing a lot of bogies. Heading in what direction? They seemed to be orbiting formations, like they were trying to spy on them or something. So the carriers continued their air raids. Hmm. The Sullivans go and did a unrep with the USS Massachusetts, BB-59, but the sea was too high for this to be done safely, and the Sullivans collided with the battleships. Oof. 
which damaged her hull and superstructure. So she was undergoing repairs alongside a repair tender, the Dixie. And a heavy storm comes up and blows her and a bunch of other destroyers away from this tender. So she drifts free downwind. And, of course, her crew was woken up in a hurry. So she had to light off her boilers real quick, get steam in those pipes so she could get control of what the storm was carrying her. But she has another collision. Now, there's a lot of smaller boats there as well, and the Sullivans was able to rescue four men before a small boat sunk. So three days later, the storm finally finishes, and they return to get their overhaul done. Yeah, the much-needed one at this point. Then in October, she's able to get underway again, and she is back with carriers doing screening sorties and things of that nature. And she is actually on the 12th of October, the first boat to be able to spot the Japanese aircraft coming in to perform a raid on them. So for six hours, 50 to 60 Japanese aircraft continue attacking this battle group. And then just after sunset, the Sullivan's sights a bomber coming in low and open fired on it. So in all, she was able to shoot down eight planes herself. Just in that one day? Yep. Well done. So on the 16th, the Japanese mounted a heavy air attack to try to finish off a few of the cruisers that have been damaged up at this point. So the Sullivans opened fire on these planes and destroyed the destroyed them. They then rescued 118 men off of the Houston that had been hit during that initial attack. Okay. So they were sweeping along the coast of Samar. They were looking for damaged enemy vessels. And then at dusk on the 19th of November, they had to fight off a lot of different air attacks. They personally damaged one bomber and then saw it disappear over the horizon, smoking but, quote, stubbornly remaining airborne. All right. And then six days later, she had better luck when her gun set a Japanese plane on fire and it splashed into the sea. She then did training exercises from December 8th to the 11th and then returned to screening duty on the 14th. And then, of course, doing an unrep for refueling, the weather gets rough again and Typhoon Cobra appears. And of course, she had to do an emergency separation because of this typhoon. The Sullivans just had terrible luck with the choppy sea and typhoons, didn't it? Well, here's the thing. Three destroyers were sunk and several ships damaged by winds and waves. But the Sullivans emerged undamaged. All right, I I rescind my statement. They learned their lesson from that first time around. And, of course, they started with the rescuing operations for men in the sea. So now we go to 1945. 
she escorts the Iowa to Manus. Then she supports the American landings on Luzon. And then finds, once again, heavy seas, which postpones a, a target that they had planned to hit. So 45 is when they started striking at Tokyo and Iwo Jima. And the Sullivans was on screening duty for all of these. On uh, February 28th, the Sullivan sights a mine and destroys it. But, of course, up to this time now, enemy aircraft were not as prevalent as they were just a year ago. So the screening operations that they're doing are starting to become pretty boring. So the Sullivans was doing another unrep with the Enterprise, taking on fuel, when there is a kamikaze alert. So they have to do a emergency SEP and they all scram. And I don't know what it is with her and the Enterprise because she was doing another unrep with them trying to get a FD radar antenna. Okay. So they could replace their antenna. And they had to do another emergency set because another enemy air attack comes in. So where before she was a magnet for choppy weather, now she's a magnet for kamikaze pilots. Well, I mean, at late stage of the war, kamikaze pilots were prevalent. Yeah, right, right. You know, you, you run low on trained pilots and you run low on your facilities to manufacture new aircraft. Well, you know what, let's just teach the kids how to hold on to the yoke, point the nose in the direction, and, you know, just load up a bunch of balsa wood with an engine and an incendiary bomb. Yeah. But she was able to get separated, and she was able to go to flank speed and open fire on the aircraft. Now, the Halsey Powell was not as lucky. The Japanese plane came through all that anti-aircraft fire and crashed into her astern while she was fueling alongside the Hancock. The Hazley Powell lost steering control and started to veer across the carrier's bow. Thankfully, the Hancock was able to avoid that collision. In other words, they went hard to port or starboard or whatever the case was. Right. And they were able to maneuver. So the Sullivans responded to the Hazley Powell and rendered emergency assistance. She was able to come alongside, they slowed to a stop, and they were lowering a motor whale boat to transfer a medical officer and a pharmacist mate over to the Hazley Powell when, you can guess, another kamikaze comes out. And this guy was heading directly towards the Sullivans. So the radar picks up on the enemy plane and as soon as the whaler was clear of the water the Sullivans just go to flank speed they go hard to starboard and they were able to get their 20 and 40 millimeter guns operating and just open fired on this one plane now it ended up not colliding with them he was like he probably saw all those tracers he's like you know what? It ain't worth it. Pulled up and passed 100 feet over the masthead. And escaped. I, that's incredibly impressive. It is. 
So after all of this, they were, it was, it was a little quiet for a little while. And then the next day, the Sullivans picks up another plane from 15 miles away. And they visually identify it. So they open fire on it five and a half miles away. And they use the five-inch battery. Remember the 32,000 ceiling on that thing? Yep, they, they put that thing into practice. Now the Hazley Powell, she was like, you know what? I'm joining in too. And under fire from both of those boats, this aircraft did not make it. She got splashed about one and a half miles from the boats. So was it that five-inch gun that got the plane, or was that just uh, them trying to flex by making that shot? No, no, it was a five-inch. Definitely. I'm just impressed they could make a shot like that, because, I mean, let's just assume that it's a projectile velocity of, like, 1,500 feet per second. That's still, you know, you're, you're talking a good 20 seconds at least between pulling the trigger and then hoping the plane is where you led the target to. Yeah. But I'm sure they're not using solid shot either. Oh, oh. Not when they're doing anti-aircraft. They're probably putting in a scatter shot round. Okay. I I, I was assuming that 55-pound uh, round you were talking about earlier. I'm sure, you know, some of them might have... Might have snuck in there, but more than likely it was just high explosive shells used. That makes a lot more sense. I, I mean, if if they did it with the 55-pound slug, you know, hats off to the gunnery crew. You know, they, they win trick shot of the war award. Yeah. So the next action they saw was off of Okinawa. They were guarding the carriers and supporting of the landings on that island. They were on radar picket duty and they came under air attack. They were able to down one plane and not get hit themselves. And then, I don't know what it is with her and unreps, but she was doing an unrep with the Bunker Hill taking on fuel, and another kamikaze alerts causes them to do a emergency breakaway. At least they have plenty of practice at this point. Yeah. I mean, even nowadays, that's how we usually ended the unwrap by practicing an emergency breakaway. <laughs> that's, we did. We really did. They were not hit by a kamikaze, but the Hazelwood and Haggard were. But they both survived. All right. And, of course, throughout the entire invasion of Okinawa, kamikazes continued to plague them. And the kamikazes targeted everything from landing craft to battleships. Uh, on May 11th, the Kamikaze crashed into the Bunker Hill, and the Sullivans went to that carrier to render assistance and picked up 166 men who were forced over the side by fires. Three days later, the Enterprise was hit by a Kamikaze, and four enemy planes were shot down, one of them by the Sullivans. And this is her last combat battle during World War II. So June 1st, she pulls into San Pedro Bay, Layette Gulf, for recreation and upkeep. Very well-deserved recreation. At this point, yes. More than earned it. Then she went over to Pearl Harbor and then to Mare Island, California, to get overhauled. 
which is why that was the end of the war for her, because the war ended while she was being refitted. She was then decommissioned in San Diego after they decided, well, war's over. We don't need more ships anymore. So she was placed in the Pacific Reserve Fleet. So now we get into Korea. She stayed decommissioned at San Diego until May 1951, when they began to start her reactivation progress. They needed to expand the fleet because of the Korean War. So she was recommissioned July 6, 1951, and was soon heading to her home port in Newport, Rhode Island. So she conducted training exercises in 51-52 over the winter in the East Coast and in the Caribbean, and then departed Newport on September 6th, bound for Japan. So after she reached Japan, she got underway to join Task Force 77 off of the eastern shore of Korea. And there she was doing screening for the fast carriers that were doing airstrikes on the enemy supply lines. She also supported United Nations ground forces who were battling the enemy forces there. And she remained on duty until October 20th, 1952, when she went back to Japan for a refit. After the refit, she went to Okinawa and then rejoined Task Force 77. And then when she got there, she resumed her screening activities and playing guard duty. So, some MiG-15 fighters approached the task force. But the combat air patrol of Grumman F-9F Panthers were able to down two of them and damage a third one. This was history's first engagement between Jeff fighters over water. Then in December 14th, she participated in blockading the Korean coasts. Her mission was to interdict seaborne traffic and bombard shore targets. So the Sullivans made contact with the enemy on the 16th off of Songjin, North Korea. And for the next few days, she bombarded railroad trains and tunnels. She liked to destroy railroad rolling stock. For some reason, she just loved it. Now, when you say rolling stock, like trains actively in motion or... Train cars, okay. whether they're in motion or not. Okay. You know, rolling stock. I mean, I've never heard it called that. You're not a train guy. I'm... No. No, I just grew up around a lot of train tracks, so I just... No, you know, don't try and beat them, and if they're stopped, don't try and crawl under them. <laughs> But remember, you put the penny on there and you will derail them. Oh, yeah, no, yeah. It, complete catastrophe. You know, desolation for miles. <laughs> uh, they also destroyed depots and prevented repairs to railroad tracks and buildings. So on Christmas of 1952, the Sullivans scored a direct hit on Railroad Bridge while under enemy fire from artillery uh, on the shore. 50 rounds splashed into the water right in front of them, never touching them. Huh. Good evasive maneuvering on the part of the helmsman. All you gotta do is stay out of the range. I, yeah, I mean, if you really want to stretch it, yes. As long as you are, you know, at just at 10 miles or 37,000 feet and change below them, you should be fine. The Sullivans did destroy at least one of these artillery positions. They have confirmed that. After this, the Sullivans was ordered home and left 
Japan on January 26th, 1953. They, on the way home, they stopped at Okinawa, Hong Kong, Subic Bay, Singapore, Colombo, Klaylon, Bombay, India, Bahrain, and Aden. They just were like, war is over for us. We're going to stay in these places and have some fun. <laughs> now, command didn't say we had to head directly home, right? And how much fuel do we have? Well, they stopped and refueled them at uh, Gibraltar. That's still a vacation spot. <laughs> but they got home on April 11th, 1953. Then... After that, she deployed with the 6th Fleet in the Mediterranean. She continued this through 54 and went back down to the Caribbean in 55. After 55, she kept flipping flopping on the coasts from east coast to west coast to east coast to west coast, which probably wasn't too fun for their crews. Uh, 58 saw a communist threat to the security of Lebanon. And Dwight D. Eisenhower ordered American ships to land troops there to protect Americans and help stabilize the tense situation. Which, of course, when you bring military troops in, it stabilizes tense situations, doesn't it? Yes, nothing helps de-escalate a situation more than bringing in the military. Yeah, the reason we mention this is because the Sullivan supports these landings at Bellarue. So after this, she comes back to the U.S. for a three-month Navy Yard overhaul, and she has to do some training at the Naval Station in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, which is a whole nother thing. But anyway. Wait, well, what year was this? 58. Okay, not Bay of Pigs then. No, but Cuba, Guantanamo Bay has been... Oh, the controversy. And I'm not talking about just the... Stuff everybody knows about. Oh, hello, G-Man. Yes, no, we're just talking about your wonderful vacation destination. Yes, you... Nothing to see here. Moving on. They go back to Newport in March of 59. Yes, that's pleasant and not controversial. And they join a hunter-killer group that is formed around the aircraft carrier Lake Champlain. Wait, 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 hold up. I thought aircraft carriers were named after presidents at this point. Nuclear carriers are named after presidents. Oh, specifically nu- Okay. Except for the Enterprise. Oh, okay. Yeah, conventional ones, no. Oh. Nuclear ones, yes. And nuclear ones are not here just yet. Okay, so that's a recent thing. Yeah. Okay. She was used in a midshipman training cruise- and she conducted anti-submarine warfare operations during that cruise. She operated out of Newport until 1960, when she went to Key West, Florida. Now, when she was down in Florida, she helped rescue five of 11 survivors from a U.S. Air Force KC-97 Stratofighter that had gone down 40 miles off of the Florida coast near Cape Canaveral. Now, in 61, the Sullivans assisted the sea trials of the nuclear-powered fleet ballistic missile submarine Abraham Lincoln. So this is when the nuclear stuff starts coming in. And yes, the nuclear subs are also named after presidents. Oh, huh. except for the Nautilus. <laughs> 
They participated in Operation Springboard after that, and while in the Caribbean, she visited Martinique. So, in April of 61, she comes back to Florida and starts intensive training because she had to prepare to cover a Project Mercury space shot. A Project Mercury space shot? What, what is that? It's a human spaceflight program. Oh. Project Mercury. Oh. I, I forgot that's what we started with. Yeah. This was the mission to put a man in orbit and bring him back safely. So, after this intense training, on May 5th, 1961, Commander Alan Shepard's Mercury space capsule, the Freedom 7, splashed down near Lake Champlain and was rescued by her helicopters. And the Sullivan was there. So, she gets overhauled in 62 and then starts her new duty as a school ship. And that's for sailors that are past basic to uh, be drilled in how to run a ship? This is more for officers. Ah, okay. No, if you're enlisted... You go from basic to your A school or right to the fleet. Hmm. Or if you go to A school, after your A school, then you go right to the fleet. What's A school? That is the school you go to to learn your job if you go in with a job. Oh, okay. So, like, if your job is going to be, like, one of the engineers. Yeah. Okay. Like, I went to basic training. Then I went across the street to MMA school. And from there, I went to the fleet. Ah, I didn't know that your job in the Navy was to, you know, throw down with uh, fisticuffs and put people in headlocks. What? You said, you said MMA. MMA school. MMA. Wait, have you not been saying MMA this whole time? Machinist mate, A school. Oh, yes, uh. Yeah, that, that's that's what I think of when I hear the word MMA. M-M space. A space school. Okay, see, I hear mixed martial arts. That's M-A-A school. <laughs> so, she served as a model destroyer so officer students could see and learn the fundamentals of destroyer operations. And then made training cruises for Destroyer School. Okay. Now, October 1962, do you remember what happened then? Um, Sputnik? Cuba? Missiles? Oh, I was going to say, it isn't Kennedy's assassination. But, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, certain certain events occurred in Cuba. There, there may have been a bit of a standoff. So the Sullivans joined the American naval forces there blockading the island. And then once the Soviet government took those weapons off, they went back to Newport. Then she conducted a few more training cruises and did her destroyer school stuff. Now, the USS Thresher, which was a nuclear submarine, was lost. And she supported the emergency investigations of that disaster. This was in 63, off of Boston. Which I'm sure we'll go into that at a later date. 
63. Yeah, we're in 1815. So 1963, 1815, it's going to be a little while. So 63, 64, she continues her officer student beating up things. And then in on April 1st, she is transferred to the Naval Reserve Force and she was put into storage over there at New York City. So storage just means mothballs and custodial crew to make sure that uh, she isn't taking on water? Well, in this instance, since she was transferred to the Naval Reserve Force, she's given a Naval Reserve crew, which is pretty much just storage because they don't know how to do anything. <laughs> yeah, mostly they just used her as uh, ASW exercises up in Canada. So there was a collision of an Australian aircraft carrier and Australian destroyer, the Melbourne and the Voyager, which sank the Voyager. So the U.S. offered the Sullivans to Australia, along with her sister ship, Twinning, as a temporary replacement. But they decided to instead take the British Royal Navy's officer of a Daring-class destroyer, the Duchess, which was the same class as Voyager. So all in all, the Sullivans received nine battle stars for World War II and two for Korea. She was decommissioned January 7th, 1965 at the Philadelphia Naval Shipyard and remained in the reserve there into the 1970s. That is an actual just tie boats up, preserve them as much as you can, and we just wait to see if we need them. All right. Uh, 1977, she and the USS Little Rock, a cruiser, were processed for donation to the Buffalo and Erie County Naval Military Bark in Buffalo, New York. And that's where she sits there today when she's not sinking. Which, from what you've said, she is not presently. Not anymore, but she was. Uh, she was declared a National Historic Landmark in 1986 and... On February 26th of this year is when she started to sink. But as of the time of this recording, she has been refloated and they are trying to get funds to process the repairs and restoration that she needs. Yes, uh, fixing naval vessels requires a little more than flex tape. Just a little bit. But hopefully they are able to do what they need to do to keep this historic ship afloat and open to the public because more than likely as our fleet goes more and more towards the nuclear option there will be less and less museum boats yeah, and for any of our listeners who haven't checked out a museum boat before I highly recommend it I don't remember the name of it exactly but uh, in fourth grade my class and I uh, checked out one of those World War II uh, submarines on Lake Michigan. Very cool, very informative. Also, not a good time if you're uh, over five feet tall in regards to the sub. Yeah, I've been on a World War II destroyer, a World War II submarine, uh, the Queen Mary over there in San Diego. She was a converted troop carrier. Hmm. Um, I've been on 
the Lexington. I've been on, most recently, the Missouri. That was interesting because I've actually been on that boat when she was not a museum. I've been underway on that boat before, so that was different. <laughs> it's like, huh, the, the gift shop's new. Yeah, but I'll tell you what. What is it? 30 years later, and she smells the exact same. <laughs> All right, I think we're going to end it here for today. We ended up going super long because we got into the Sullivans that took a lot longer than I thought it was going to. We expected this episode to be maybe 25 or 30 minutes with the Second Barbary War. Who knew the Sullivans had such a colorful history? This was all... Also, our first time attempting to do a ship history. So let us know what you thought of that, whether you enjoyed it, whether you thought it completely sucked and you don't want to ever hear that again. <laughs> Send us an email at usnavyhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also tweet at usnhistorypod. And of course, you can leave us a five-star review for the Second Barbary War and a one-star review for the USS Sullivan's. <laughs> no, no, no. Not, not a one-star. We'll accept a two for that. Steven, anything you want to say before those two men in black behind you grab you? Uh, um, I wish you all fair winds in following seas. Now, listen, fellas, um, I can explain the cigars, okay? Those I got from Canada. So, yes, it starts with the sea, but completely... Hey, hey, wait, wait, where are we going? Where, hey, hey. U.S. Naval History Podcast, departing 